which is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. You'll find that in your pew Bible, pages 14, 11, and 12. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Those are in your pew Bible on pages 14, 11, 14, 12. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first to consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we're looking at this portion of Scripture today, we meet up with Jesus as He is on His way to Jerusalem. As He heads down the road, Luke points out the fact that there is a large crowd the word of his ministry has spread far and wide throughout Israel and has attracted a large group of followers to travel with him down this long dirt road. And it is at this point that Jesus stops his journey to Jerusalem and he turns his attention to the crowd. And the message he gives is certainly not a message to win friends. He's not going for a popularity contest. And unlike speeches we're about to hear, being that it is an election year where the politicians will be tickling our ears to get our votes, he's not doing that. Jesus is not running for office. He's already king. He's not trying to earn votes. And in this speech, Jesus is calling out the sheep from the goats. 
As Jesus gives this message, He has one purpose, to call true disciples to Himself, those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus, and have faith in Him and Him alone. That desire to know Him and do His will, those who can hear His hard teachings and remain true to Him till the very end. Today, just as 2,000 years ago, we're challenged to see if we're truly disciples of Jesus Christ. Do we have what it takes to stay on the road, following Him and never turning away? Are we really, truly followers of Jesus Christ? Or are we just with Him to the point that it's no longer comfortable to us? And then we turn and walk away. We see that Jesus sets out for us three distinctives that are essential for one to be a disciple. In our passage, He says three times in verses 26, 27, and 33 that if these distinctives are not met, we cannot be His disciple. As Jesus calls His disciples out of the world, we are given the test, considerations, and grace for discipleship. In verses 26 and 27, we see that we have the test for discipleship. And in verse 26, we have the test of loving less devotion of a disciple. As Jesus begins this test, He hits us with a deep and a personal way. It's as if He goes right to the place where we feel most comfortable and surrounded by those who mean the most to us. It's as if He walks in right into our living rooms and points at this person and says, She who carried you for nine months, nursed you, sat with you when you were sick. In order to follow me, you must hate her. The man sitting right there who worked his fingers to the bone, putting food on your table, keeping a roof over your head, till you became a man yourself or a woman yourself. In order to follow me, you must hate him. The brothers and the sisters you played in the fields with, that you grew up with, that was there when you fell down, when you broke your arm, when you got your first A, when you got your first F. In order to follow me, you must hate them. So what does Jesus mean when He says hate? First, He does not mean that you should break the fifth commandment. Jesus would never ask you to break Scripture. Even though He has said these things, the fifth commandment still stands. You should honor your father and your mother so that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So what Jesus is presenting us here is with a biblical language of loving less. That is that you have more devotion and greater love for person A than over person B. Think of it this way. It used to be a television show called Our Gang or Little Rascals. Some of you may be familiar with it. But there was this character named Spanky and he formed this club. It was called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And it was for guys only. No girls allowed. But there was one of Spanky's friends that had a problem with this club. It was Alfalfa. See, Alfalfa loved Darla. And so, instead of Alfalfa being part of this club, he would sneak off and go off with Darla, sitting on the side of the curb there with her during the meeting of the He-Man Woman Haters Club, licking ice cream, But this doesn't mean that, of course, that Alfalfa didn't care for Spanky and Stymie and the rest of the gang. 
but he loved Darla more. And this is an example of where we start to see what Jesus means by hate. And some examples of the Bible that are used and often pointed to is Jacob. He married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. We see that Jacob's love for Rachel and love for Leah, but the Bible describes them in two very different ways. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 30, Jacob said to have loved Rachel more than Leah. But then in verse 31, the Bible says that Leah was hated. So though Jacob loved Leah, it paled in comparison for his love for Rachel. We see the same is said for Jacob himself and his twin brother Esau. In Romans 9, we're told that before the twins had done anything good or evil, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Does not mean that God did not love Esau, but it felt in comparison to his love for Jacob. When we're faced with our love for Christ or things of this world, then the comparison must look the same. Though you may love your mother, your brother, your friend, it must look like hate compared to your love for Jesus. Loving Jesus more than your family is not. Even where this stops. See, the world has plenty of tests to see where our love truly lies. It may come in the form of a friend who is taking us to go to a sporting event instead of going to church on the Sabbath. What do you love more? The game or Jesus. It may come in the form of people who are not favorable of our love for Jesus and say that you can no longer come around us. We don't feel comfortable with you here. You no longer do the things that you used to do. Make a choice. Who do you love more? The things you used to do? Or Jesus? Anything we put before Jesus, or we are devoted to more than Jesus, disqualifies us from being His disciple. And it's not just that He demands that disciples love Him more than anyone else that He holds dear. And He demands even more in this next test. Notice at the end of the first verse we looked at here, that He says that, even more than your own life. And he goes on, he's talking about bearing your cross. And we've all heard someone say that if they're having some sort of troubles in life, those things are their cross to bear. The bank account is empty. The car won't start. Or the kids won't behave. They'll compare this irritant to the Lord and Savior's crucifixion. And I can assure you that this is a gross and negligent use of the term. And it is not what our Lord and Savior is saying here. See, in the first century, when someone was seen bearing their cross, carrying it down a street, the onlookers knew that that person was at a point of no return. The cross bearer was on their way to die the most horrific, painful, and humiliating death anyone can imagine at that time. It was an execution reserved for criminals and slaves. A very painful and humiliating death was imminent for the cross bearer. Think of the crucifixion as a first century equivalent to being sentenced to the electric chair here in our day. And that is what Jesus is saying to us. If anyone wants to truly follow Him, they must hate their own life. For us to be true disciples, we must be willing to be humiliated, embarrassed, and yes, even to the point of being tortured and death, to truly follow Him. 
Just as our love for our family must look like hate when it's compared to our love for Jesus, so must the love for ourselves look like hate when compared to our love for Jesus. If you were able to hold yourself up to a light and see two gauges inside you, and you dial them up and say, let me see what my love for myself looks like and my love for Jesus looks like, ours should look empty and Jesus should look all the way full. That everything that we do, everything that we breathe, everything that we make, everything that we walk, everything that we go to, shows that we love Him more than ourselves. A a true disciple loves His Christ, loves Jesus, and even to death. (coughs) There's a fact that in this world, the Christians are persecuted. Forms of persecutions of Christ can come to some different levels. One recent act of cruelty happened during the pandemic. Where Christians are minorities in places like Zimbabwe, Africa, during the pandemic, Christians were not allowed to get any sort of COVID treatment, according to Focus on Africa, a mission group in Africa. It was better in their mind to let the Christians suffer and die while treating almost anyone else. And then there are other forms of persecution, like Marion Harvey, a young covenanter woman, who while in Edinburgh, was arrested on her way to a field meeting to worship her beloved Jesus. She's arrested because as a covenanter, she could not stomach the thought of saying that the king is head of the church, when she knew that Christ was head of the church. And at the age of 20, she was pulled in front of the authorities after being arrested, and she was asked... Are you willing to throw your life away at such a young age? Her reply was, I love my life just as much as any of you do, but I will not redeem it on such sinful terms. As Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. And she was sentenced to death to be hung on the gallows. As they were putting the rope around her neck, She sang the 84th Psalm, which we will sing here in a little bit. And she read from Malachi chapter 3 to the executioners and the onlookers. And then for the gospel of Jesus Christ, 20-year-old Miriam Harvey was executed. There may come a day when we are forced to choose Christ over our own lives. There may be nothing left for us but the gas chamber. And as at this time we could pass the test of the cross pair and love Jesus more than our own life. Will we continue to love Jesus more than our own life if we were being walked down the hallway to an electric chair? And the only thing that we have to do is say, Jesus is not our first love. Can we put a check in the box next to the word Christian, even if we knew it would not get us medical treatment? Can we pass the test of discipleship if it means losing our life? And I've heard it said this way when it comes to our love Jesus over ourselves. If we're not ready to die for Christ, we're not ready to live for Christ. So as we look back and we see that Jesus' ultimate demand, His demand is that you love Him more than anything, even yourself. That in all things, you put Him first. To not Love Him above all things disqualifies us from being a disciple. 
As we move from verses 26 and 27, we see that Jesus understands that these tests are difficult for us. He just doesn't want us to just jump right into discipleship without letting what may come to us really sink in. And that's why in verses 28-33, we're given considerations for discipleship. First of all, we have the parable of the tower builder, where we're told to calculate the cost. And it begins with a question of intent, that whoever is hearing this understands and agrees that a tower is an expensive undertaking. Uh, we were just discussing the cost of the buildings over here on the way here. Uh, and think of the undertaking that is. You don't just sit there and come up one day and say, you're brushing your teeth and say, I'm going to build a Mercedes-Benz Stadium right over here. It takes a lot of planning, and it certainly takes a lot of money. But what Jesus tells us to think about the cost, that's what he really wants us to do is sit down and count the cost. He wants us to take time. He's not like we're sitting around picking out towel colors or whatever we need to go through uh, to get to completing uh, our laundry or even when we're sitting there in the drive-thru making an order. He wants us to take time out. He wants us to sit down. He wants to think us through and weigh exactly what it's going to take because it's a great undertaking to be a disciple. The cost is so great, like building a skyscraper, that Christian discipleship must be thought in a slow, grinding, considerate manner. See, Jesus is warning us about knowing that if we have enough resources to finish the task at hand, as he says in verse 29, the foundation is laid, yet is not able to finish, and all will seek to mock him. See, we'll become a scourge if we say that we're disciples and then we end up to not be disciples and carry it through to the end. Another way that Jesus teaches this is back in chapter 9, 62, verse 62, and he says, No one having put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, we're expected that once we get through and go that we push and we shove and we go and we hang on and we complete the task. There is no turning back. I'm brought to mind a man whom I was once friends with. And as I served as an elder at a church that he was a member, he would call me and we'd discuss Bible verses and theology, and we'd grow to be great friends. It was wonderful to have him as a friend. And then one day, he handed me a Bible, and it had an inscription on the inside. It was written in Latin. And when I asked him what it said, he would not tell me. Not too long after this, he and his wife came to the church and said they were getting a divorce. They'd been having marital problems. We tried to counsel them through it, but they split anyway. He ended up leaving the church. Afterwards, he would start saying strange things about church and Christianity on social media. All of a sudden, this man that I once knew and had these deep conversations and showed to me that he loved Jesus now is talking about Christianity is not real. One day, as I was going through my books, I came across that Bible, and I opened up 
and saw, and saw the inscription and said, oh, I can Google that. <laughs> and so I Googled it. And do you know what it said? Perhaps one day we will look back at all of this and laugh. My friend had already taken his hand off the plow at that point that he made that inscription. I didn't know it yet. He did not have Jesus. And now, as I look back and question if I ever really knew him, I pray for his repentance. But that's what happens. That's how someone doesn't keep their hand up. One minute they're moving down the road, they're going along with it, and all of a sudden something happens and they're, they're gone. They're no longer in the flock. See, he could not stand and pay the cost. He could not work through all of his issues. He could not stay there. He could not be part of the community. And he's mocking us. Not only in this parable do we see that true discipleship has a cost. It has a great cost. It can even mean parting with everything that you own. When Jesus counsels the rich young ruler in Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, we see him use this very test to see what the heart of this man is. We're told, starting in verse 17, that Jesus says, uh, Now as he was going out on the road, one man came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What Jesus is teaching us here is not to literally give up everything that you want, but rather is emphasizing for us to not be attached to the things of this world. We must be relying on him above all things, that we have. To be a disciple, we must have complete faith in Jesus. We desire Him more than worldly things. There may come a day when it looks like we ourselves are personally challenged to choose between love of Jesus and our worldly possessions. We can see examples of people making decisions like this before us all the time. Many of you may have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor who was executed by Hitler's Third Reich for his condemnation of their political ideas. Bonhoeffer writes about the early days of Christian missions and how in certain parts of the world, if someone said there was a Christian, they would get a double portion of rice. Then at least some of the churches, when they got to the point where they could no longer afford to give double portions of rice, some of them left. Some of the professors and Christ left. And they started calling them Rice Christians. They were not around because they had been following Jesus. They were around because they have been following food. Instead of being lovingly called disciple, they are now mocked 
for their false confession are called rice Christians. See, when we go and we profess Christ, are we sure that we're really professing Christ? Are we sure that what we're saying is, I'm here for you, Jesus. I'm not here because the coffee's good. I'm not here because the parking's great. I'm not here because there's a light show. I'm not here because, hey, they have a good singer today. I'm not here because Miss Michelle's very nice. We're here because, and we profess Christ because, we are truly devoted to Him. Is that how we are? Are we like the rice Christians? When it comes to Christ, when everything seems to be our liking, we stay around and talk about how much we love Him, that is Jesus. And then when these things change and the circumstances make us feel challenged, we divorce Him. Are we really rice Christians? Who would falsely profess faith and get what we want from the church or Jesus? But as soon as the church can no longer afford to give it, leave pursue our worldly desires elsewhere. Can we stay in the fight even when things don't look good and look dim? Can we keep our hand to the plow? Have we counted the cost? Do we know what's coming down the road? If we're not ready to follow Jesus, then there is no sense in beginning. Keep in mind that Jesus tells us that these material possessions are not to be put before God. That true discipleship is what we follow Christ and not our worldly possessions and that he himself has already displayed this level of discipleship in his own life. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and yet he continued on the path to Jerusalem. So as we continue to consider our discipleship We're not only to count the cost, but we must also confront our weakness. Not only does being a disciple require careful consideration of cost, but with the parable of the two kings going to war, we're told we can't afford to not be disciples. In the first parable, the builder needed to think if he could afford the building. But the weaker king in this parable knows he doesn't have the resources to win the battle. We can't afford to not be a disciple of Christ. Because the very battle for our soul depends on it. As the weaker king sees that he cannot win the battle, he sends out a delegation to sue for peace. And we have seen an example of this recently with Russia and Ukraine. Right? When uh, Ukraine says, send us weapons. We don't have enough weapons to fight these people. Send us, send us these weapons. And at the same time he's saying, I need to talk to the president of Russia. He knows that he can't beat them. He knows that he's the David and Russia's the Goliath. And he cannot possibly win this war. He cannot possibly win this war the way things are. He must use other means. See, the weaker king is always forced to consider his weaknesses in battle. It is impossible for him to win the war on his own strength. And guess what? You and I are the weaker king when in the battle of discipleship. We do not have the resources it takes. We somehow have to go out somewhere and make a, 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 a sue to somehow get what it is we need. Make a plea. Make a cry. Is not in us. If we do not love Jesus more than anything, if we do not have the resources to complete the task, and we're not going to win the battle, we're false disciples. And the only thing that we have left is grace. There is grace for discipleship. Starting in verse 34, we see that Jesus uses analogies 
of things being palatable, and it makes it this, and uses that to make a distinction between a true and a false disciple. We see him here using the analogy of salt. The first thing we need to know is that salt of Jesus' day was not like our own. You know, now you can leave salt on the table and come back to it a couple of years later and put it on your fries and like, hey, it's good. But not in his day. If it stayed out in front of the elements, it would evaporate and it would come out and it just would not taste well. He uses this a lot too. In Mark 9.50, he says, again, the salt is good, but if it loses flavor... How you season it. He continues on using uh, these analogies of things being palatable in Revelation 3.16, which Pastor Smith has been preaching to us from the book of Revelation. When Jesus is addressing the Laodiceans, he says to them, Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And he is speaking to a church here, people. He's questioning the truth of their profession in him. And are they disciples? No. They're rise Christians. They're impalpable because they're not truly on fire for Christ. Now they're cold. Now they're hot. They're lukewarm. A few weeks ago, my wife asked me to make a nice coffee for her. It doesn't matter what temperature it is outside. She enjoys iced coffee. Well, I'd never made iced coffee before. And Nancy bore the full brunt of the failure of my first attempt. Although I used the same cup that she always uses, the coffee pod, the creamer, and even the machine, it turned out to not be palatable. She added water, more coffee, maybe a couple other things, I don't know. But she could never drink it. And after many attempts of trying, it could not be seasoned. And when she came home, she poured it down the drain. It wasn't fit for land or the dunghill. See, like coffee, if we were not authentic disciples, we were unpalatable to God. The only thing left to be done is to pour us down the drain as we are useless. If our religion is not true, we are lukewarm. We are not on fire for Jesus. But there is grace. After laying down these distinctives, saying that we cannot afford to be disciples on our own, that we are too weak and we do not have our own resources to be disciples, there is grace. It's in verse 35. Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus did not say this because he was taking a shot in the dark. Jesus was not saying this because he was hoping that someone out there was good enough to pass the test, to be able to think these things through well enough, and then somehow come up with the ability to afford it and, and the resources. Jesus knew that there were those who have ears to hear, and they are his disciples. His sheep. Jesus knows that the sheep hear his voice. He knows that the parable of the builder and the two kings and the salt will be understood by true disciples because in Matthew 4.11 he said, For his followers it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those on the outside, all things come in parables. 
And in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus thanks the Father because the things that have been hidden from the wise and have been revealed to babes. Jesus knows that there are disciples. Is in Matthew sixteen seventeen when Peter told Jesus that he was the Christ. Jesus said, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." And in John ten twenty seven, Jesus says, "The sheep." Hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's grace not only because there are sheep that hear his voice, but there are also those who do truly love Jesus. And it is by grace. It is not by anything that originates in the sinner and man himself, but from the source of love itself. In John 4.19, it says that we love God because he first loved us. Disciple has a true love for God because his love for us is irresistible, and the only way that the disciple can respond is to love him in return. Not only are disciples that hear his voice and love Jesus, but by grace, disciples can finish the task at hand. The assurance of the tower of discipleship being completed does not come from inside us, but outside of us. The disciple's hands will not be taken from the plow because he will not be taken out of the hands of our Savior. Jesus says in John 10, 29 and 30, My Father who has given them, that is the sheep to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my, the Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. It is by God's grace that we follow the path He has set out for us that we no longer put worldly possessions before Him. It is by God's grace that in no way do we end up like Lot's wife who turned back to look at Sodom and Gomorrah when she was told to stay on the path that God has set for her. Do not look back. And she turns back and she turns into a worthless pillar of salt. But instead, by God's grace, we're made useful followers. It is by God's grace that His sheep will hear Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Pass before me on my right hand into the inheritance I have prepared for you. And as we close this today, let us consider whether we see examples of God's grace for discipleship in our lives or not. Do we truly love Jesus more than anything or anyone? Are we ready to die for Jesus because we love Him more than we do ourselves? Do we really have trust in Him to know that He will help us finish the task of discipleship at hand? Maybe you don't hear His voice. Maybe you're not sure. Then we are to do the same thing that those who do his voice too, especially at the times they start to tremble just a little bit. Go to him and see that he has already prepared the way for you. This journey that Jesus is on to Jerusalem here in our passage today, he finished it. He went there to do the will of his father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed about it. Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, lest I drink it, it will be done. Not only did he love his Father and do his Father's will, 
He bore the cross for you. And as he said, while hanging on the cross, it is finished. His work is done so that we can truly follow him. That we may be useful and not be lukewarm. But in every day of every moment, be on fire for him so that we are not vomited out of his kingdom. Let us pray.